Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is John Kalis. John Kalis has investigated edible wild plants since 1970 and taught about them since 1978. A trained botanist, nature photographer, writer, researcher, and teacher, uh, Dr. Kalis founded Wild Food Adventures in 1993 and was the primary writer and editor of Wild Food Adventurer, a newsletter he published from 1996 to 2006. John Kalis is here on Health Watch today to talk about his book, Edible Wild Plants, Wild Foods from Dirt to Plate. And if you'd like to join the conversation today on Health Watch about wild foods, the number is 503-231-8187. Welcome to Health Watch, John. Thank you, David. Well, in both your book, Edible Wild Plants, and in your business, Wild Food Adventures, um, you advocate uh, the harvesting and, and eating of, of wild plants. So uh, I wonder if you can tell us why you think that's a good idea. I'm sure we have some listeners out there who are thinking, well, why can't I just go buy lettuce in the uh, grocery store? And um, uh, what, what would be the difference in, in harvesting and, and eating wild plants? Well, adv advocate is an interesting term because um, I, I actually don't see myself as a promoter in a sense where I think everybody should do this. This is something that um, only people that really are excited about, you know, nature and gardening and things like, you know, being in that kind of milieu really should be doing this. Most people, you know, they, they don't even have a garden. If, if you don't have a garden and you don't have the time for that, you're probably not going to get into wild foods that much. Uh, unless you're big into hiking or, you know, other things that get you out into nature. Um, but it does take a little bit of time and effort and knowledge in order to do this. You can't just wish that you know these plants. You have to know the plants before you can gather them. And, and what sort of benefits do you see from the people who are motivated to learn more uh, about wild foods? Uh, do, is it primarily connecting with nature? Um, or are, do you think people see some nutritional benefits from eating wild foods versus their domesticated counterparts? Well, yeah, I actually, I have a whole chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, on um, why people are, uh, uh, why people could be excited about wild foods and how they can fit into their lives. Um, not only is it a fun recreational activity that you can do on your own, uh, but this is something that a family can do together. Um, kids are really excited about nature. And we have a problem today uh, that was uh, coined uh, nature deficit disorder. And that's where people um, sort of don't get into nature anymore because, number one, they don't have time or they have to watch their kids. And we have all these new laws now about letting your kids roam around. I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, we were seven and we were roaming the neighborhoods on our own as a little posse of kids, you know. Today, if you did that, you could be thrown in jail for, you know, child neglect. And so when we were kids, we got to explore nature on our own. There was no supervision. Today, everyone has to be supervised. So um, this way, the parent can actually get out into nature, enjoy nature themselves while their children are enjoying nature, and do it with a specific purpose. And that directedness uh, actually leads to a much greater understanding and more fun and and the pursuit of uh, a general hobby about wild foods that both the parent and the kid can really enjoy. Kids, kids love to eat stuff from nature, and it, it, surprisingly, they're often more capable of distinguishing unique plant 
identifiers than the, the parents are. So there isn't that much of a, a, an issue about kids like eating something that they're not supposed to be eating. Well, and looking at all of the beautiful photos in, in the book and, and recognizing myself that, wow, some of these wild plants are growing in my yard. And, and you mentioned that they're growing in a lot of people's yards and, and farms and other places as well. I would imagine it would also have um, a potential economic benefit for people if, if they knew that they actually had some edible foods in their yard um, they could eat for free that that um, maybe they're right now they're composting or throwing in the yard debris rather than bringing into the kitchen. Yes, I, I, you know, the, uh, the plants that I chose to cover in this book, there are thousands and thousands of great edible wild plants all over North America. And I had to choose certain ones to put in the book. And so this book and, and my second book, this is just volume one of a series I'm working on. Um, I chose specifically that were all over the place available to everybody. Uh, in fact, we were having a little conversation before we came into the studio, and you said, yes, I recognize the plant that, you know, I've been throwing out all this time, but now I know it's a food. Well, the book is designed so that if you bought this thing, read through it, you would recognize several plants you've been throwing out all your life. You've been passing them, you've been seeing them, recognizing them, but had no idea that they were a food, and now you've got another option with them rather than throwing them in the compost. You can actually take them in the kitchen and do something with them. And I try and give you all the details that, you know, would allow you to have a success actually doing that. At the beginning of Edible Wild Plants, you talk about how the field of wild foods has been in neglect and that there are some landmark books that came out maybe 50, 60 years ago. And, um, but there's a real uh, void in terms of um, making the books user-friendly. Can, can you talk about... Um, what that void is and how your book is is filling it, filling that void? Yeah. Um, Yule Gibbons, who some of your older listeners might recognize the name of that. Matter of fact, he was one of the most recognized people in North America because he was on a lot of um, talk shows. He was on the Johnny Carson show a lot, and um, he was doing Grape Nuts commercials in the past. So a lot of people knew who Yule Gibbons was. Uh, he popularized the field of wild foods, but... He was much more than a pitch man. He actually wrote uh, really great books on wild foods. He, instead of just like in some of the so-called field guides that you have today about wild foods, instead of just taking one photograph and having one page to summarize all the information you could possibly have on wild foods, he would write a whole chapter about a plant. And so he really advanced the field of wild foods. A lot of people got into it after he popularized it. Uh, and then everybody and their relatives decided, oh, this is an interesting field. I'm going to write a book even though I know nothing about wild foods. And so everybody would, you know, these, uh, there's probably 200 books written since him about wild foods where people are just sort of repeating old bad information, poor photographs, single photographs of the plants. Uh, and so the field has really been languishing for um, in need of uh, an educator in the field that could really help people who don't have access to botany, who haven't taken botany classes as they've been growing up, uh, don't know much about plants. And so, uh, I felt like the, the best thing I could do is to make wild foods accessible to the normal human, uh, to actually create a pictorial manual 
about each of these plants, doing a chapter per plant, just like Yul Gibbons did, only uh, having multiple photographs all the way from birth, you know, all the seedlings, all the way to when the plant is producing seed. So several photographs of that, of the sequence, then doing close-ups of um, the edible parts at their prime stage of edibility so that people could actually see exactly what they're supposed to be eating. Um, and then if there are any processing techniques they needed to know, you know, I could actually show them that. So it's a very visual uh, uh, educational tool. And I call it a user manual, not a um, field guide, because it really does show you in a sort of entertaining way and an easy way set for today's audience, how do you go from dirt to plate? I believe we, I believe we have a call from Joanne. You're on the air with John Kalis. Uh, yeah, hello, um, uh, Mr. Califf. Um, I, I was, I don't know, I, I've been under the impression that uh, our water, air, and uh, earth are, are uh, contaminated with all kinds of chemicals, and I was wondering how could it would be all right to eat wild plants anywhere, but anyway, I'll listen to what you have to say. It's a very fascinating uh, subject. Thanks for the call, Joanne. Well, that's a good question. I was also want, was going to ask you that as well around, I know sometimes when we're doing, say, like heavy metal remediation uh, for lead contamination in the soil, there are, um, people will plant greens because some of the greens will uptake the lead well. Um, is there some concern around, um, around contamination and, of soils and, and that getting into the leafy greens? Oh, yeah, there's always a concern. Uh, I mean, today, um, there is no escape from contaminants. I mean, planes fly over and they're dumping fuel. How are you going to stop that? So the idea is to make wise choices about where you're gathering. And you can only make a calculated guess about the safety of any particular place. Uh, you can see direct contamination. Um, like, for instance, the worst place in the world to possibly pick is anywhere near railroad tracks. They've been dumping herbicides on railroad tracks every year, sometimes multiple times a year, for 100 years. So that's why nothing grows by a railroad track. But you, plants are very hardy, and so they will survive near a railroad track, but, you, you, you know, that is the very worst place to gather anything. Um, Close to high-traveled highways and things like that, you've got exhaust, you've got stuff dropping on the road and, and washing to the roadside. And, and so you're, you're basically looking for places that you can guess are relatively safe. So it's a really a judgment call wherever you are. And also, like, like we were talking about, some of those plants are showing up as volunteers in between the plants in our own gardens at home. Exactly. And that's probably the best place to, to gather. And, I, and there's also a, a photo, I believe, of your garden of mostly wild, wild plants that all, you've grown. All wild plants. All wild plants. Yeah, my garden basically is, you know, you turn over the soil, you water, you eat. You know, there's no, I don't plant tomatoes, I don't plant peas. I'm just eating the wild foods that come up. So you divide the, the types of foods that eat in the book into four different categories based on taste. How, how did you come up with those categories as, as ways to um, categorize the, the wild plants that you talk about? Well, um, you know, being a student of wild foods all my life, 
um, one of the frustrating things was that whenever I discovered a plant, I had no idea what it was going to taste like. And, um, and while it can still be a surprise and fun to discover the flavor of things, I find that if you have somewhat of an idea of what to expect, then it's a little bit easier to manage. So particularly for the bitter plants, um, because I'm not a bitter lover, although I've come to like it more with time as I've you know, done my research and stuff. But um, I'm not a great lover of bitter. But if I know that the plant's bitter to begin with, then I can mentally prepare for sampling it and starting to decide, well, how could I use that so it would be delicious in a, in a meal? And so I divided the plants in the book into what I call foundational greens, which are like, you know, lettuce and spinach, so sort of just very conventional flavors with no harshness at, you know, or, or no tartness, no sour, no bitter. And then, so we've got foundational greens, then the tart greens, then the uh, pungent greens and the bitter greens. So there's like sort of four sections. And let me uh, sort of make a, um, not quite a correction, but we didn't want to go with an elaborate name for each of those sections. So we just said greens, even though they're more than greens. Every one of these plants has um, a vegetable. The greens are usually leaves. So there could be leaves, there could be flowers, there could be asparagus-like parts, there could be seeds, you know, so there's a lot of different foods there. But uh, if you divide them into sort of flavors, then people can predict sort of how to use them, and they're more likely to come up with something they actually enjoy eating rather than sort of struggling through and, you know, being surprised by everything. We're talking today with John Kalis, the author of Edible Wild Plants, Wild Foods from Dirt to Plate. If you'd like to join the conversation on Health Watch, the number is 503-231-8187. Well, maybe we can walk through a, a plant um, f from Foundational Greens, for instance, um, and talk about what the book would tell us. I, I know you mentioned lamb's quarters, which you refer to as wild spinach, I believe. That's um, correct. Um, and a lot of the plants that was interesting for me to learn had names that had to do with the animals in, in domestic farming that were eating them. Yes. Like, like pigweed and lamb's quarters. Right. Um, what, what would the book tell us about lambs, uh, wild spinach, for instance? And um, obviously it's going to help us f identify it. And then um, does it then tell us how to um, uh, keep it fresh if we're out hiking, for instance, to get back to home? Uh, and, and what else? Yes, um, um, I cover uh, pretty much all the aspects of if you're going to do this, how are you going to do it successfully? So um, if you're going to gather things like wild spinach or other plants, each one has its own unique, like, for instance, transportation technology. Uh, I hate to be so technical in just saying that, but um, uh, for instance, uh, uh, wild mustards. Uh, dry so quickly relative to other plants that they need special care. So I recommend and actually have a, a little section in the book about what tools to use that help you to be more successful at this. And so particularly for things like, um, like wild mustards, um, I would take a spray mister with me. I actually have a holster in my belt for a spray mister. So while I'm out there and I'm gathering, I immediately put the the mustard into whatever carrying container I have, and then I spray mist it to add moisture to the outside of the plant. So it's not like you have to put the stem in water, but you're actually moistening the whole plant. 
not unlike they do in the supermarkets. When, you know, you're walking by the produce section, you hear thunder, and then all of a sudden sprayers go on, and they're moist, you know, moistening all of the plants uh, because they actually need that to stay alive. And so that kind of technology I cover in the book, what do you do so you're not coming back to the kitchen with totally wilted greens that everyone would go, well, why am I eating this? You know, you want these wild foods to be just as beautiful and delectable as anything you get in the supermarket, and I show you how to do that. And so also, how to, I'm assuming, how to prepare them into the meal as well. Yes, and, and also um, what parts to gather when you're out there. Um, I, I mentioned earlier about uh, you're looking for the appropriate parts of the plant at the ideal stages of growth to get the best food. And so um, you really want to be able to determine when that is because plants are variable and the habitats are variable and the microclimates where the plant is, any particular plant is growing may be different. You also need to know how to recognize when that plant is worthy of collecting or not because a lot of people when they get a wild food book, they just see the plant and they grab the first plant they find. Well, no one's tending this plant. It's not like farmland where they're watering it, fertilizing it regularly. Um, you, as the consumer, are actually making a choice when you're looking at a plant, whether is that going to be choice and good tasting just by how it looks and where it's growing, or is that going to be like chewing on leather because I'm picking it at the wrong stage of growth or under the wrong conditions. And has there been any research done on whether there is an added nutritional benefit or um, for eating a wild version of a plant versus eating the domesticated version, say spinach versus wild spinach, for instance? Well, um, there has been research done, and I have nutrient charts actually in my book, um, about wild foods, and uh, they tend to be nutrient powerhouses but I, I, I don't like to focus on that. Um, even though I have a PhD in nutrition, I really think people should be eating foods and not nutrients, if you know what I mean. You should be focusing on diversity and um, uh, a, a tendency towards more fresh fruits, vegetables, plant life. Um, you know, I'm an omnivore myself, but... Um, I think the whole society would benefit if they're eating more, you know, low on the food chain, more plants. Uh, and that adds a tremendous amount of new phytonutrients that we have no idea about. Well, actually, I want to call them phytochemicals because I think our, our culture has jumped the gun and they're already calling things nutrients. And the, the literature is just in the infancy stage about this stuff. Uh, you know, but if you listen to Dr. Phil and other people You'd think that we know everything there is to know about phytonutrients at this point, but we don't. We know they're there, but we don't know how they work or what works better than others. And, you know, they, they can't, you know, they're having trouble repeating stuff in the laboratory, you know, so we're really at the infancy for that. But cultures that ate more plants and diverse plants and wild foods, not because they're wild foods, but because they were diverse. They, you know, like uh, it, it, where the original Mediterranean diet came from, where the, almost the whole diet was wild, um, both plant and animal life. Um, the, the grannies who did most of the food preparation knew anywhere between 100 and 150 wild foods. 
and they would be incorporating in those into the diet every single day, not the hundred, but you know, two or three wild plants would be coming into the kitchen, fresh pecked every single day and included in breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, and because of that diversity, those cultures that ate those kinds of diets due to the diversity that's only available if you include wild foods, um, had almost no cancer, no heart disease, no dementia, lived very, very long, healthy lives. Could you talk briefly about Wild Food Adventures, your business? I, I imagine that might seg that might be fulfilling some of this um, knowledge gap around. We've lost this knowledge of our. You know, mm -hmm. you're talking about the Mediterranean grandmother of bringing in these wild foods. Is that part of the purpose of of your business, um, helping people to reclaim that knowledge, or is it, or is there some other purpose to it? Well, um, there's a, a variety of reasons that um, I. I have the business Wild Food Adventures. Um, and my primary mission is to get people closer to the earth so that they're better caretakers of the earth. Because that's what happens. When you spend more time in nature, you appreciate it more and you're more likely to protect it. Um, but as a recreational activity, and I like to consider this a recreational activity, it's just so much fun. And to be able to teach this to people, a lot of people only learn well when they're being taught by another person. After all, that's how, you know, we evolved from, you know, eons ago. It was just word of mouth how things were taught. Now we've got a book because, you know, you can't have a teacher everywhere. Um, but um, if you do have access to an actual human being that can show you these things, it really helps. It's easier for learning for a lot of people. Uh, well, let's take another caller. Mary, you're on the air with John Kalis. Hi, Mr. Kalis. Um, yeah, they love the show. My my mom is a naturalist, and she um, teaches the edible lawn in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. But um, I was wondering if you could address the whole invasive species aspect of this, because around here, um, you know, Queen's Anslace, which is a wild carrot, is considered an invasive species, and there's so many others that we can actually eat and that are beneficial for, you know, bees and birds and, and us, but uh, they're considered invasive, so we're told that we need to cut them down. So that, that's my question, and, and I'll listen to it off, off the air. Thanks. Thank you for the call. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually um, have very mixed feelings about um, invasive plants because, on the one hand, uh, there are certain ones that take over our natural areas, and, and those I'm pretty upset about. However, many of those are edible plants that were brought over by our European ancestors because they were food. And, you know, in Europe, a lot of those plants are under control because so many people are eating them. Here, we've got uh, something called Japanese knotweed, and, um, you know, people are going to great lengths to destroy it with herbicides and everything else, if everybody knew how good it was as a food, uh, same thing with garlic mustard. Garlic mustard is a horrendous weed uh, invading our natural areas, but it, garlic mustard is probably the most nutritious leafy green that's ever been analyzed to, to date. And if everybody knew how to eat it and knew how to identify it to pick it in the first place, uh, we wouldn't even have to get natural predators to be, you know, like they do a lot of times, they'll bring in a beetle or something that eats a plant to try and kill an invasive. 
if everybody knew how edible and delicious these things were, then we would be the control pest, basically, that's eating the weeds. I guess calling us a pest is not probably the best thing to do, but, you know, um, but if everybody did participate in that, uh, it would be a great thing. In fact, there are garlic mustard festivals in different parts of North America where, like, a park will actually have a festival where they bring in people, they have booths and music and all this kind of stuff, and they actually have people, they teach people how to identify garlic mustard, they go collect it, and then they have cooking contests. And so that way they're harvesting a lot of these plants and cooking them up. It helps the natural area, and people learn about the plant, and then they can eat it from that point on. So, John, if, if people are, if their interest is peaked after today's program, uh, where can people find the book, Edible Wild Plants? Well, uh, it's pretty much available anywhere. If you um, buy it from me through my website, then as the author, then I make more money than if you buy it anywhere else. Uh, I don't know if any of you are authors out there, but if you buy the book like from Amazon uh, or uh, Barnes & Noble, I'll make uh, $1.25 a book. And if you buy it from me, I make $12.50 a book. So it's wow. a tenfold difference. That's a big difference. But if you don't have the money, I'd rather have you have the book. You know, so buy it wherever you can afford it. But uh, you can go to my website, and there is an order form you can go to. And, and, and what is your it. website? It's wildfoodadventures.com. And can they also go to wildfoodadventures.com to sign up for classes if they were wanting to um, take some of your classes? Yes. Uh, we usually have about 22 classes a year, and there's five left uh, this year, I believe. Um, so, um, oh, by the way, also, if even if you buy from Amazon, go through my website and click the link to Amazon because then I make a few more cents if you <laughs> go from my website to Amazon. So you should know that about authors. You should, you know, if you can link through, you should always do that because anything you buy after that, you'll you'll be helping the author out. Well, it's a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, John. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. We were talking today with Dr. John Kalis, the author of Edible Wild Plants, Wild Foods from Dirt to Plate, and the founder of Wild Food Adventures. Uh, stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine. I believe we're heading now from wild plants to an issue about the plight of wild fish. And if you're interested in, um, if you missed part of today's program, you can go to www.kboo.fm slash healthwatch. And later today or tomorrow, this should be uh, available to listen to as a download. Uh, take care.